Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church in Somerset, Kentucky. Please make sure to visit us online at phbcsomerset.com. We're going to continue our series, Don't Take the Bait. Um, You know, the devil, he likes to trap us and tempt us, and he can trap you and I when we entertain an offense toward either God or other people. And the whole point of this series is you don't have to take that bait, okay? And today I'm going to talk to you about when others offend you. Last week we talked about when we're offended toward God. Uh, Today we're going to talk about when others offend us, choose to overcome. Um, I'm reminded of uh, some of the wisdom sayings in the Old Testament. Uh, King Solomon, who was the wisest man who ever lived, wrote in Ecclesiastes 7.21, He says, don't pay attention to everything people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. For in your heart, you know that many times you yourself have cursed others. I'd say that's wise counsel, don't you? You know, it reminds me of the the, uh, older gentleman that was having hearing problems, and he went to the doctor, and he finally got hearing aids. And the doctor said, all right, I want you to come back in a year and tell me how well they're working. And so a year later, he went in the office, and the doc said, well, what do you think? He says, oh, they're working all right. I've changed my will three times. (laughs) Yeah. So be careful, okay? Don't pay attention to everything people say. Proverbs 19.11 says, A person's insight gives him patience, and his virtue is to overlook an offense. That's true. When we have insight, when we have wisdom, when we have discretion and discernment, uh, usually it gives us that, that we're, we're with all we need to be patient with people because how many times has God and, and people as well been patient with us? And, and if we're willing to be patient, it's a virtue for us to overlook an offense. And, and many times if you can overlook an offense in the name of love, do it, Okay. But if for some reason you choose not to overlook an offense or you choose to confront an offense, then here's what I want to say in Proverbs 16.32. Patience is better than power and controlling one's emotions than capturing a city. Now, we're talking about being offended, in this case, toward others. And I have to say this, that this is the gate that can lead to a wrong path if you're not careful. I like what Michael Hyatt, Michael Hyatt's a former CEO of Thomas Nelson Publishing in Nashville. He retired a few years ago and started his own company, the Michael Hyatt Company. And Michael Hyatt talks about things in leadership, and he says this about being offended. He says, being offended is a choice. You get to decide how you react to the wrongdoing of others. Now, let me say that again. Being offended is a choice, and you get to decide how you react to the wrongdoing of others. I want to look at the scriptures this morning. Before we turn to our main passage, I want to give you three examples that stand out to me in the Bible of where people had to make the choice of how they was going to handle, you know, wrong wrongdoing. Um, or, or, or an offense. For example, let's go back to the beginning, Cain. You know, Adam and Eve had two sons. They had Cain, and then they had Abel. And so this is the first family, you know, mom and dad and two boys. 
And there in Genesis 4, verse 2, Now Abel became a shepherd of flocks, but Cain worked the ground. And in the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious and he looked despondent. Now, Hebrews 11 sheds more light on this. You know, we know that Abel, he, he made his offering in faith, which suggests that perhaps Cain did not, and that was part of it too. But then the Lord comes to Cain in verse 6. Why are you furious and why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. I like this example just because it shows how things went south even in the very beginning of human history. And it highlights that that pivotal moment, that fork in the road, that crossroads where inside of our hearts and minds we make a conscious decision to go the right way or the wrong way. And you can see it right here, plain as day, with Cain. Unfortunately, Cain took the wrong path. It says in verse uh, 8, Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's guardian or am I my brother's keeper? And so here is Cain who takes an offense because God doesn't accept his offering. And then he transfers that offense to his brother. And now, instead of having you know, an issue with God, he takes it out on his brother and he kills his brother. Notice how it starts with an offense. And if it's not dealt with in the proper way, in the proper manner, left unchecked, it can lead to greater things and worse things. There's a second example. That's a negative example. Let's give you a positive example for a minute. Um, one of my favorites is Joseph. You remember Joseph who had all the brothers who was son of Jacob. And we read about his story in the book of Genesis. And I'll, I'll tell you a little bit so I can just read a little bit. But, you know, Joseph was uh, a favored son. He was his father's favorite. And um, everybody else knew it. And that was the, the problem. And... Um, Anyway, um, he got a special coat that his dad made, and you know he had these big dreams that one day you know he would, I guess, be royalty or at least be important, and his family would would bow down to him. Well, they didn't like that either, especially his brothers. And to make a long story short, they hated him. They hated him even more. Eventually, they decide that they're tired of their 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 brother, and so they fake his death and they sold him into slavery. And off he goes to Egypt, and presumably they will never, ever see him again. Until years go by, there's a famine in the land, and then they have to go to Egypt to get food. And ironically, they fulfill the dream and the vision that Joseph had, because now he's second in command under Pharaoh. God has raised him up, blessed him, and he's doing what God's called him to do. It hasn't been an easy road for Joseph, I mean, betrayed by your family, 
hated by your brothers, sold into slavery. He ends up working uh, uh, in a place in Egypt under a man who, whose wife makes a pass at him. He refuses. Now he's thrown into jail for a crime he didn't commit. He helps people along the way interpret their dreams. And then he hopes one day he'll get a break, but the people that can help him forget about him until one day God gives Pharaoh a dream and nobody can interpret it. And a guy goes, I remember this guy when I was in prison. And in a New York minute, Joseph goes from the prison to the penthouse, if you will, or the palace, and he's second in command, and God uses him and blesses him. And then when the famine hits the land, Joseph, uh, Joseph's brothers come, and it's quite a compelling story. Ultimately, they have to go back home and take care of family, and they have to bring another younger brother, Benjamin, to prove that you know everything's on the up and up. And then through that whole ordeal, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. And we have a happy ending and ultimately, uh, his brothers go back to Canaan and they get their dad and they get the whole clan and they come to Egypt and they live. And you want to say they live happily ever after. In a way they do, but in a way they don't. Because, you know, they come back to Egypt and everything's great. The family's together again and everything's great until daddy dies. And then there's a funeral. That sounds like a, that sounds like a southern soap opera, don't it? How many families are doing great until mama or daddy dies and then there's a funeral? Come on. Yeah. You know. You know what I know. They can either, those funerals can either bring you closer together as a family or they can tear you apart. And it's really not the funeral. It's what the funeral reveals. And here is the, the funeral of Jacob. And now he's dead and he's gone. And his brothers get this idea. Oh, no. They say, you know, we did a lot of things wrong to Joseph. And now daddy's not around, and he's got power. We're toast. That's what they think. And in Genesis 50, with all that said, here's what the Scripture says in that part of the story. Genesis 50, 15, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said to one another, If Joseph is holding a grudge against us, he will certainly repay us for all the suffering we caused him. So they sent this message to Joseph. Before he died, your father gave a command. Say this to Joseph. Please forgive your brother's transgression and their sin, the suffering they caused you. Therefore, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And it says that Joseph wept when their message came to him. Now I'm reading between the lines, and this is strictly the Meg's translation here, okay? I don't know why Joseph cried, but my suspect is he cried because they were peeling a scab off of an old wound that he wanted to see healed. And I think that he had done everything he could to make sure that everything was right between them, and now they bring it up one more time, and I think he cries because he goes, you know, you still don't get it. And so here, his brothers come to him, and they bow down before him, and they say, we are your slaves! But look at what Joseph said. It, it says so much about his integrity. It says so much more about his maturity. He says to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Now that's a very relevant question. Because when you are offended toward other people, before you decide what you're going to do and how you're going to deal with it, ask yourself the question, am I in the place of God? 
And I think it's rhetorical because you'll realize very quickly, no, I'm not, you're not, none of us are God. Okay, God alone is the judge, right? And he says here, am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me. And if we stop there and let that sink in for a minute, that's true. They hated their brother and they thought about killing him. And then the oldest, Reuben, said, why don't we just throw him in, the, in this dry well over here for a minute until we figure out what we're going to do. And then some slave traders came by heading to Egypt and they went, that looks like a good idea. We can still spare our brother's life, but we can get him out of here and we'll never see him again. But then they had to take the coat that his daddy made him and tear it to shreds and put some goat's blood on it and make it look real, make it look convincing because we got to go home and tell dad. What are we going to tell dad? We can't tell him the truth, so we'll just tell him, we found this coat. Looks like a wild animal got him. And that was the story, and they stuck to it for years. And so Joseph, when he looks at them, he says, you planned evil against me. That's true. But then he says, God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Therefore, don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your children. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. When he first revealed himself to them a few chapters earlier, I think it was in Genesis 45 or something like that, when he told them who he really was, and they were like, <gasps> he said, God sent me ahead of you to save lives. You see, Joseph, going through the hard knocks of life, realized that this vision and this dream of his family bowing down to him was never about his ego. It wasn't about him. It was about the, the privileged position that he would have someday, but it would give him the opportunity and the responsibility to save lives, including his own family. And that's exactly what happened. And so at the end of the day, Joseph, when he gets to that moment, that crossroads where he's hurt, he's been wronged, and he's offended, he takes the high road. And he says, what you meant for evil... God meant for good, and God is going to use this. I don't know how, but He's going to use it. And then years later, He can look back and say, God sent me ahead of you to save your life. And that's what this is about. And I'm just like, wow, Joseph. You know, not, not everybody ever gets to that, that point in their life that they can look back and see God's hand, and they have the perspective to say that, and the maturity and the integrity to say that. But Joseph did. Let me give you one more example. We'll run to the uh, New Testament now, and it's the ultimate example, and it's Jesus. And, you know, we've just recently celebrated Easter, and we've talked about the cross and the death, burial of Jesus and the resurrection. But I'll go very quickly to Luke 23. And Luke's account says that two others, criminals, were also led away to be executed with him, referring to Jesus. And when they arrived at the place, called the skull, or Golgotha, they crucified him there. And along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. So Jesus was on a cross between two criminals, two thieves. And then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, because they do not know what they're doing. And they divided his clothes and cast lots. And, and I could go on, but you get the story. But thanks to Dr. Luke, the physician, he includes that statement by Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. 
Do you believe that God answered that prayer? I do because as you put the gospel accounts together, and you've heard me share this before, but it's a powerful story that resonates with me. At first, both criminals on his left and his right are mocking him and you know insulting him just like the whole crowd is. But at a certain point, one of the thieves becomes repentant. We just sang about it in the, the song a while ago. And I think what touched that, that repentant thief was taking in everything that was happening that day and then looking at Jesus, and all he says is, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. He's not retaliating in kind. He, he's not holding a grudge. He's not on a power trip. He's not bitter or angry. He's taking everything on the chin, and then he's turning around and he's praying for the people that are basically killing him. And I think that totally changed that repentant thief. Peter wants us to notice the example of Jesus too. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter raises a question. For what credit is there if when you do wrong and you're beaten, you endure it? In other words, if you do something wrong and you get beat for it, so what? You deserved it. What credit is that to you? But, but when you do what is good, and suffer, if you endure it, that brings favor with God. Oh, now we're in a whole nother level. In other words, when you do the right thing and you're still suffering for it, you're not treated right because of it, he says if you endure it, it brings favor with God. You might not earn uh, favor with people, but God looks at it and smiles. And he says you earn favor with God. And then he says this, he says for you, you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in His steps. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in His mouth. When He was insulted, He did not insult in return. When He, was, when he suffered, He didn't threaten, but entrusted Himself to the one who judges justly. Now we look at Jesus and go, well, you know, that's Jesus. He's the Son of God. How, how, how else is he going to act? But look at what he modeled for us as an example. He didn't insult others with insults. You know, like they insulted him, he didn't fire back at them, okay? Um, they mistreated him, he didn't retaliate. Instead, he didn't threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Which reminds me of Joseph when he says, Am I in the place of God? So let's think about this for a few minutes this, moment, this morning. And I want to talk about how to overcome an offense. And I want you to know that when you get to that pivotal moment, when you get to that fork in the road and that crossroads, learn the lesson from Cain. Learn the lesson from Joseph. Learn the lesson from Jesus. Because every one of us is going to be at that crossroad at some point in our life. You're going to be hurt. You're going to be offended. And you get to choose how you're going to respond to that wrongdoing. You get to choose. And so let's look at Romans 12. This is going to be pretty straightforward and pretty quick. So listen quickly and listen closely. But how do we overcome an offense? Number one, don't get even. In Romans 12, 17, it says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Now, I'll be honest with you. That's kind of human nature, isn't it? Yeah, it is. You know, you slap me, hey, I'm going to slap you. You know, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That's what the law in the Old Testament said. 
But here it's saying don't repay evil for evil. I mean, think about it. You've heard about the Hackfield and the McCoys, right? We're in Kentucky. And how long did that last? And what good did it do? I mean, you do it, the other one does it, you do it, you do it, back and forth, and you have this feud that lasts generations till finally one day people are fighting because that's all they know and they don't even know what started it. I won't ask any of you if you've ever been in a fight before and you was arguing with somebody and then you forgot what you was arguing about. Yep, yep, you know what I'm talking about. That can happen too. But it says here, you know, if you're going to overcome an offense, don't get even. That's just adding fuel to the fire that's taking things to another level and you're never going to solve that. The second thing you do to overcome an offense is you do the right thing. Now, that's, uh, that's hard to do sometimes, but notice what it says in verse 17. Don't repay anyone evil or evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. I think you need to do the right thing because it's the right thing. I think in our culture today, we, we, we appeal to people's pride. Be the better man. Be the bigger person. And you know, that sounds good until you evaluate it with Scripture and you're appealing to pride. No, do the right thing because it's the right thing, period. Why? Because at the end of the day, there's a God in heaven and we're all going to stand before Him and we're going to be judged on whether or not we did the right thing. So do the right thing because it's the right thing. And then the third thing to overcome an offense is live at peace. Look at what it says here in verse 18. It says, If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now let's acknowledge what the Scripture says. It says, if possible. Can I be honest with you? Sometimes it's not possible. If you look in our culture today, when we talk about the culture wars I don't think it's possible when you've got one group that says this is what we need to do and we got another group, this is what we got to do and neither one's going to change, then you're going to have to deal with that tension uh, as long as that's the reality and that's just the way it is. But when it comes to living the Christian life, we are called to live at peace. You know, first of all, we need to be at peace with God, okay? If there's anything in our hearts, if there's anything in our lives that's unpleasing to God we've got to repent of that first and we got to be at peace with God first and then once we're at peace with God then if there's anything that we need to go to someone about and make right let's do that and be at peace with other people and when we're at peace with God and peace with other people we're going to experience that that peace that surpasses all understanding so what Paul is saying is it may not be possible but as far as it depends on you you do the right thing and you do your part And that is so true. Sometimes there's nothing worse than seeing something happen in a relationship and and years go by and one's here and one's there. And, you know, who's going to make the first move? Ultimately, you have to say, it's not about that. It's about, am I going to die with any regrets? And and am I going to do the right thing? And then you, you do the right thing. And you can't control what other people do or don't do. But you can say, I'm going to do my part and I'm going to do what's right in the eyes of the Lord. And I want to be at peace with Him and at peace with everyone else. How do we overcome an offense? We don't get even. 
We do the right thing. We live at peace. And I like this one, number four. Leave room for God. There in verse 19. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath. Because it's written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. I'll never forget a neighbor of mine named Larry, a great guy that got saved at the age of 50, you know. And one day we were talking, and he was talking about somebody. He had his own business. He worked hard for a living. And one day he talked about somebody that had done him wrong, you know. And, you know, lesson learned. If they're going to do you wrong and not treat you right, well, I just won't do business with that other person. And, and, and you know, he, as, once he became a Christian, he says, God had to deal with my heart on that. And he says... I'm still not going to do business with them because they've proven to not be trustworthy. But he says, in my heart, I no longer hate them. He says, you know, before I even became a Christian, I decided that I'm not God, I'm not judged, I'm just going to let God deal with them. But now that he was a Christian, he says, you know, I'm praying that God won't hold that against them. And I was like, wow, wow, Larry, you're you're really (laughs) overwhelming me here in your growth, you know. Uh, Just just the growth in his heart, his love for God and his love for people. He's like, you know, the things that have happened in my life that have been done to me that are wrong, I'm going to commit them to God, right? And then he went even further and he said, but now I'm going to pray for those people because I don't want God to judge them. I pray that they come to repentance before it's too late. And I'm like, there you go. There you go, brother. You got it, you know. And that's kind of the spirit of these verses because of what comes next. In verse 20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you'll be heaping fiery coals on his head. And I know we read that and go, yeah, pour it on, pour it on. But the purpose is, verse 21, don't be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. And you know, and that's, I think, what Jesus did. On the cross. If you go back and look at that one more time. I know it's familiar. I know we know the story. How Jesus was treated on the cross. And he was crucified. And it's so familiar that we just kind of rush over the obvious things. But go back and look at that again. When Jesus is hanging on the cross. And he's getting it from the crowd. He's getting it from the, the two criminals. One on his left and one on his right. And in the midst of all that chaos and confusion. And just how awful it was. He's able to say. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He was able to overcome evil by doing good. What did he do that was good? He prayed for them while they're doing it. And as a result, he won a soul to the kingdom before the man died. Hey, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. You see, how we handle an offense, how we handle being done wrong, says a lot about our integrity, says a lot about our maturity, and also it can serve as a ministry. How we handle it. Other people are watching, and when they see how we handle it, God can use that to change their lives. Just ask the repentant thief in heaven. That's one guy, quite honestly, I can't wait to meet. I'll just say, I know what happened. 
But I want to hear it from you. What was going on in your mind leading up to that? I just want to sit there and just take it in. I, you know, several people that when I get to heaven, we've got all of eternity. I can't wait to meet them. I want to ask them questions. I want to be the interviewer. You know what I mean? Like I want them to tell their story, the untold, uncut version. You know, we, we got the facts in the scripture, but I want to know every emotion and thought and how you struggled and what when the light bulb came on. I want to know all of that, right? And I can't wait to hear that from the repentant thief in heaven. And then the last thing, and I guess I got ahead of myself, there was five points here, but how to overcome an offense. Don't get even, do the right thing, live at peace, leave room for God, and overcome evil with good. I don't know about you, but that is what Christ has called us to do. And all I can tell you is we can be fine one minute, we're going through life and everything's good and dandy, right? And then something happens and we become offended. And some people never get over that. That's true. And this message, what I want to tell you is don't take that bait. It's a trap. And it's not worth it. Look at Joseph. Am I in the place of God? No, I'm not. And you know what? I'm going to have to answer to God just like everybody else. Matter of fact, I want to tell you one last thing before I wrap this up. And it's about Joseph. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. If you read Joseph's story there, I think it starts in Genesis 39 and goes to like the end of the book. About 12 chapters or 10, 10 or 12 chapters. But as I was telling his story earlier, I want to zero in on another area of the story. So he's gone through all this stuff. And in, in God's timing, he's able to interpret Pharaoh's dreams and he's raised up to be second command of Egypt. And at this point in his life, I think things start coming together. Like this dream that he always had of people bowing down to him. He was a slave. He was sold into slavery. And then he's put in prison. That's never going to happen. A slave doesn't sit on a throne. A prisoner doesn't sit on a throne. That's never going to happen. But now all of a sudden he interprets Pharaoh's dreams. And he's second command in Egypt. And now I think he's going back to that dream and he's going, this could actually happen. Maybe not today. Maybe not tomorrow. But I'm in a position to where this could actually happen. And then the famine comes. And people start coming from everywhere. Oh my gosh. My family's far, far away from here. But people everywhere are coming here for food. This could actually happen. And then the day comes that his brothers show up. And by then he's been Egyptianized. I just made that up, right? He looks like one. He talks like one. Okay, forget the song. But anyway, he looks like an Egyptian, right? And they don't recognize him, but he knows who they are. He knows exactly who they are. And, you know, I could go through all the ins and outs of the story, but basically accuses them of being spies 
and he asks all kinds of questions. He finds out that they have a dad back home and that they have two more brothers. One's at home, and it's dad's pride and joy, and the other one, well, he's gone. Well, yeah, you're talking to him, but that's another story. And so he makes sure that they're taken care of. He tells them, you're spies, I don't trust you, and the only way I'm going to believe what you say is the next time you come back to ask food, you better bring back that other boy or I don't believe you. And he sends them packing, and they've got their green sacks full, and he tells his servants, put their money back in their bags. And they get back home, and they realize they're, that they've got all the food, and then there's the money. And God starts dealing with their conscience, Right? Time passes by, they run out of food, and they've got to go back. And Jacob does not want to let his son go. He doesn't trust them. The last time his favorite son went with them, he didn't come back home. There's something there, old wounds that haven't healed. But ultimately, ultimately, he lets them go, and all of the boys go back to Egypt. And, you know, leading up to that, the first trip, when Joseph, uh, to make them know that he was serious when he first uh, accused them of being spies he says I'm going to keep all of you and send one of you back but then after three days he comes out and says I fear God and he made one of them Simeon stay in prison while he sent the rest of them back to their families with the food the first time they went to Egypt And I look at that moment, and I go, okay, Joseph is just like us. He's trying to learn how to deal with this new reality. Oh, my goodness, I'm now in a place of power. Oh, my goodness, I am going to see my family someday. Oh, my goodness, what am I going to say when it happens? What am I going to do when it happens? You know, how, how, how can I be redemptive, God, because I don't want to be bitter and I don't want to keep this feud going for generations, right? And so he, he, he's, he's praying about it. I really do believe he is. And at first, to shake him up, all of you are staying in prison. I'm just sending one of you back. But then God changed his mind three days later, and he says, I fear God. And that's the first clue that something's going on because they don't know he's their brother yet and they're in Egypt, which is a godless place. And here's the man saying, I fear God. And I think God tells Joseph, you need to keep one brother. They'll get the message. Send the rest back and I'll take care of this. And I think from that point forward, everything that Joseph did to handle the situation, he was prompted by God on what to do, what to say, and how to do it. And in the end, it all worked out. I say that to say this. When you and I are offended, and we stand at that fork in the road, how are you and I going to handle it? Are we going to try to be God, pay them back? Or are we going to say, this ain't about me? And besides, I'm accountable to God just like them, and God will remember this someday and leave, leave room for God to work. But even better than that, maybe one day you'll get to a place like my friend Larry did in Tennessee. You'll, you'll come to a point to where you're like, you know, I've offended God, and I need Him to forgive me, and I need Him to save me. And then once God comes into my life and he changes my heart and I have a love for God and a love for people, you can go back to those old wounds and you can say, God, I gave that to you because I'm not God, you are. But now I'm going to go a little bit further. 
I want to overcome evil with good. So I'm going to pray for my enemies. I'm going to persecute those. I'm going to pray for those that persecute me. And I'm going to, I'm going to love them. And, and Lord, I'm going to ask you to forgive them because they just don't get it. Now I realize, as simple as I tried to explain that, that's a tough place to get to. It's not easy to get there. Why? Because you have to be offended first. And you have to be hurt first. And you usually stew a while and you go, hmm. But ultimately, you got to realize, I'm not in the place of God. And it's not about me anymore. And you've got to be willing to not get even, do the right thing, live at peace with them, leave room for God's wrath, and overcome evil with good. And I love that last point. We're not talking about being passive aggressive. Don't get me started. But we're talking about overcoming evil with good. There's a way to fight against what's wrong. But you do it God's way. And if you do it God's way, He wins every single time. And I hope you never forget that. Let's all stand, musicians and ushers, if you'll come. We're going to have our time of response. Lord, we come before you right now. We thank you for this word from the word. And Lord, I pray that you would speak to each and every heart. Lord, maybe there's someone right now that's struggling because they've been offended. They've been hurt and they've been wronged. Lord, maybe it's an old wound that's hung around for a long time. And Lord, you've made it very clear. You've made it very plain today on what your word says. And Lord, I pray today that we'll choose to do what's right. That we won't give in to sin. We won't go down that road that leads to death but Lord we will trust you and we'll seek to follow you and Lord we'll ask you to change us and even to change them Lord I believe you have that kind of power but Lord it starts right here right now in our heart it starts with us and Lord I pray that you'd have your will and way in each of us right now in Jesus' name I pray. Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church. To learn more about the church, find out meeting times, or learn how to contact the pastor, please visit phbcsummerset.com.